0: I just want to just really quickly welcome you here. This would be the, the normal point in our service where we would welcome you and do some announcements and all of that, but we're, we're structuring our service a little bit differently this afternoon, and I, I think you're going to see why. We have some baptisms. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's faithfulness and grace, um, and, and that's going to actually take place at the end of the service, and that'll become very clear to you uh, throughout this message. This message is going to relate very clearly to baptism, and so I, I hope this is going to be helpful and encouraging, and, and I want you to see that, that the baptisms at the end of this service are really, in one sense, going to be the crescendo. They're going to be the greatest application of this, this passage, and I, I trust they're going to stir our hearts to greater worship and praise of the God who saves. I uh, I had the privilege and joy of being at a wedding yesterday. Wedding season is upon us, right? And um, and it was really really sweet and encouraging. Uh, one of our staff members, Tamsin, was married to uh, Tim Barry, and it was just so so encouraging. Beautiful wedding. I got to sit at a table with three other couples. Um, I, I was a part of all of their weddings, and and so just the wedding was heavy on my mind. And uh, and this week, this week, my wife Sarah and I are celebrating twenty years. Twenty years. So that's. that's yeah, praise the Lord. And, and I know that's all for her. That's <laughs> job well done. So, um, but it, it made me think a little bit just as we think about weddings, that the nature of weddings is two people coming together in a covenant relationship, um, committing themselves to each other. And, and the sign of that covenant in the Western world in particular is, is a ring, so, so what happens in a wedding ceremony, and it's, it's incredibly important, is these two people are committing, they're, they're pledging their love and their lives to one another, they declare their love for one another, but more than that, they declare their commitment to one another through vows, and to solidify that act, they place a ring on each other's fingers, and, and the ring is supposed to symbolize, it's supposed to act like a sign, a, a perpetual reminder of the commitment that both individuals have entered into in this, this beautiful, solemn, covenant relationship. And, and it And it made me think of the fact that that God, God enters into covenant relationship with his people, where God, in, in, in a covenant, he commits himself to his people, and his people, in turn, commit themselves to God. And God, too, provides a sign, a covenant sign, to remind his people of the seriousness of this commitment, of the enduring nature of the commitment, and of the obligations that each party has committed to. And it's really fascinating that that actually what what we understand in the scriptures is that marriage itself, human marriage, the institution of marriage, is actually intended to display a greater picture of marriage, a greater covenant relationship. Your marriage, if you're married today, is intended to tell the world that God desires to be in a more intimate personal covenant with you. So marriage... Is trying to signify and it's a precious gift and when we think about God's covenant with us especially if if you're a Christian today you are a part of what's called the new covenant when we think about God's covenant to us I think we, we rightly think about God's faithfulness to us in the covenant we just sang about that he will hold us fast He's committed himself to us. He will be faithful to the end. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that is by far the most precious part of the covenant that God has made with his people. But I wonder how often, when you think about the fact that you are a part of this new covenant, I wonder how often you think about the commitments you have made to God. In this passage today, we see that true faith which is required to be a part of the, the covenant people of God, requires obedience. Obedience to certain obligations, and, and those obligations, that, that obedience, it actually produces uh, the blessings of faith. And in our text today, Abraham, in Genesis 17, he's going to be reminded of the covenant that God has entered into with him, But more than that, he's going to be reminded of the obligations that God has laid upon him. And and the real focus of this passage is about Abraham's faith. It is for sure about God's faithfulness, but you need to see this, the real focus is about Abraham's obedience. It's more about what Abraham must do. And we can learn so much from this. In fact, I want us to see here four requirements for obedient faith, because obedient faith is what God expects of of us. First, I want you to see that obedient faith requires that we encounter God's unmatched power. This is what spurs on obedience in our faith. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, tells us he calls the faith of the Christian uh, the obedience of faith, tying those two pieces together. But here in chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 8. Look at what it says. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will be their God. 14 years has gone by since the end of chapter 16. In fact, the end of chapter 16 reminds us that Abram was 86 years old. So Moses is wanting us to pay attention that there has been a long lapse of time. 14 years is not insignificant And it's actually been 24 years since God first called Abram back in chapter 12 out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so in in just a few chapters, we see a massive span of time has gone by, especially when you consider the life of an individual. And what you need to understand, this is why it's significant, he's pointing at the age of Abraham, because Abram still does not have what God promised. It's been a long time. But then all of a sudden, almost out of the blue, think about this, 14 years has passed, all of a sudden the Lord appeared to Abram when he was 99 years old. Just out of the blue. He shows up to Abram one day. And this is so powerful, it's so significant because what we we need to be reminded of is that the creator of the universe is disclosing himself to Abram. A mere mortal is actually encountering the transcendent, all-powerful God of the universe. In fact, this is the first time that God himself gives himself a name in Scripture. He introduces himself and he uses the, the Hebrew name El Shaddai. First time it's used in the Scripture. It would become a common name that God uses when he speaks to the patriarchs, a common name that God will use when he comforts his people in suffering. For example, the book of Job, this name appears more than 30 times as God speaks to Job in his suffering. And that's not insignificant because the length of time here, here's what Abram needs to be reminded of. Listen, to Abram, you right now are encountering God Almighty. Because right now in Abram's life, he appears powerless. It once again appears like the promise of God, there's just no, no human way of it being accomplished, and God is saying, that's right. But I am no mere human. I am God Almighty, and this name signifies God's power, his omnipotence, and it signifies his sovereignty. One commentator says that it describes the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. And this is what is compelling Abram to persevere in the faith. That's what I want you to notice here in this passage. It is an encounter with God that allows Abram to continue to persevere in the faith. Listen, the way we live is determined by the way we think about God, which is shaped by our encounters with God. Let me say that again. That's that's really important to understand. The way we live... Is determined by the way we think about God, which is ultimately shaped by our encounters with God. And if you do not continue to encounter God in your life, here's what you can see as you read throughout the scriptures, you will not continue in the faith. That's a startling reality. I'm not saying you'll lose your faith. I'm saying you'll fall away from the faith because you probably never really had true faith, but one of the things we see is that those who persevere to the end are those who have regular encounters with God Almighty, and part of the reason is because as we live this life, listen, it's impossible to live this life faithfully before God. It's impossible to make it through this life to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth without the very power of Almighty God. Do you realize that? God must hold you fast. And and if if you just think about the world we live in and and the kind of life you potentially live, listen, if Twitter, if Instagram, if TikTok, if YouTube and Facebook and the spirit of this age are discipling you, you will not continue to the end. You, You will not grow in holiness. You will not form a Christian worldview. You will not cultivate Christian virtue. You will not speak Christian words, think Christian thoughts, live a Christian way. You see, conforming to this world is actually countered according to Paul in Romans chapter 12, one and two, by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that is, listen, through regular encounters with God through his word. Do you realize, I just I want to speak pastorally for a moment here. I, I pray for you every week. Every week you sit under God's word. One of my, one of my frequent prayers is this. God, God, don't let them just learn things about you. Lord, don't let them just more know Bible trivia. God, help them to have an, a, a true, genuine encounter with you, the living God, the creator of the universe, and here's why I pray that, because listen, my, my words have no ability to change your heart. My words I have no ability to hold you fast in the faith and, and, and help you persevere to the end. It is only the words of God, and it's only you encountering God Almighty that will hold you fast to the very end. And maybe by way of a practical application, because I'm, I just, you know, you guys know the stats. I don't need to sit out here and spit data at you, but I know this. I know, I know how easy it is to get distracted from having genuine encounters with God. I know how difficult it is because of these devices, right, in our hands, in front of our face all the time. And so what if, what if some of us, maybe all of us, committed to, instead of opening up social media apps when we're bored... What if instead we started opening up Bible apps? What if we started spending less time exposing ourselves to trivial things of the world and more time exposing ourselves to the word of God, praying that we would have genuine, meaningful, powerful encounters with the God of the universe? Here, Abram encounters God. God makes himself known, and then he's going to make two demands. Notice this. The first demand here in verse one is this. Walk before me. And the second one is this, and be blameless. To walk before God, it means to live in such a way that every single step is made with reference to God and every day experiences him close at hand. I mean, just imagine, okay, for a moment. I mean, this is totally hypothetical. See that? totally hypothetical. Imagine that everywhere you went, God was there with you. Imagine, listen, this is, imagine everything you did, God was right there. Would it, would it change the kind of things you watch? It's God right there. He's on the couch beside you. Would it change the habits you have, the things you you look at on your phone? Would it change the kind of things you say to people? The kind of music you listen to? The kind of thoughts you had? in every sphere of your life, would it, would it change how you operated, how you actually lived? Because that's exactly what it means to walk before God. It is to walk, to live your life as if God is always present with you. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees it all, he knows it all. And, and in light of that, you're living for him, the God who sees. The second command here is to be blameless. Now. It does not mean, this word does not mean to be sinless, because that's impossible. What it means is this. It means to be whole, and it signifies a complete, unqualified surrender to God. So put these two pieces together, and here's what you have. Abram is to live as if God is always with him, and therefore he is to be wholly devoted to God as his king. Every part of his life is to be done in service to God. You see that? and I want you to catch this, this is, I want to make this clear, his relationship with God is based on God's grace, but I want you to see this, he must be obedient to God. See, why is that? Well, here's why, because in order to experience the blessings promised by God, God requires his people to be obedient, and the promises now come in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He's reiterating that, that the covenant that he's already made with him. And then you see the response of Abram. It's, it's really powerful. Notice verse 3, he fell on his face. This is what happens when people have genuine encounters with God they see his holiness, they see their sinfulness, they see their dependence, they see his sufficiency, they see that they're inadequate, but God has everything they need. Really, this is in some sense here a picture of what it means to truly fear the Lord. Reverential awe and worship. And I wonder, listen, I wonder if we struggle so much with obedience because there is no genuine reverence and fear of God in our lives. I think true obedience from the heart always flows first from a heart of awe and worship, It's what fuels our obedience. That God is so worthy of all of our obedience, of a life of worship. May this be our response to encountering God's unmatched power. Verse four, you'll notice that we're being reminded that this covenant, that he would be a father of a multitude of nations. There's this subtle reminder here, listen, that this is at this point humanly impossible. Abram's too old Sarah's too old and then verse 5 to reinforce this promise God actually changes Abram's name to Abraham which I'm so thankful for because I can't say Abram anymore (laughs) it's so hard right when you're so used to Abraham and I'm reading the text like it gets tripped up in my mind you've noticed it I know that was a side note sorry but it's, it's really powerful what he does here because his name reflects this idea that Abraham will be a, a father of the nations, a multitude of people. And so his, his name signifies, listen, this fresh start and it's a, a reminder of the power of God who can take this man who's virtually dead and bring an abundance of life from him. Every time he hears his name, he's being reminded, look how powerful God is. He takes what's dead and brings forth life. It's so awesome the name he gives him, what it signifies. And that name is going to produce obedient faith in the God, as Paul says in Romans 4:17, reflecting on this passage, if faith and obedience in the God who gives life from the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And verse 6, we get a glimpse too. He broadens the promise. This is the first time we're told: listen, kings are going to come from you. I mean, it's not just, just people, nations, and kings are going to come from you. And we know, listen, we know that this is pointing us all the way down the road to Jesus Christ, the King of kings. And then verse 7 and 8, he goes on and says that he will establish his covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant. <laughs> To be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you, give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And here's the kicker: listen, this is the best part of this whole passage right here. And I will be their God. Now, now, here's why this is important: because spiritually, the essence of the covenant is all about a personal encounter with God. It, it's like the uh, the I will of a marriage ceremony, you know that moment in that declaration of intent, and, and, and the couple looks at each other, they hear the declaration of intent, what they're committing to, and they say, I will. Do you know what God's doing here? It's like a marriage ceremony where God is saying, listen, I will be your God. And that's the greatest part of the promise that God makes to Abraham. It's it's not all the particulars of, of the land and the offspring, all those things are pointing to one greater reality that listen, God's people will one day be led into an everlasting land where they will encounter the Almighty God forever and ever and ever. The promise is connected to the presence. And this is our hope, isn't it church? Our hope is the same as Abram's. Abram would die, he would never see the fulfillment of the promise because he was looking further ahead to a better land, to a new heavens and a new earth. God is saying to us, listen, as we sojourn across this world, as we wander in the wilderness sometimes, guess what? We look forward to the day when El Shaddai, almighty God, will bring us into the promised land, and we will encounter his presence forever, and we will never be the same. Obedient faith requires, secondly, that we experience God's unending grace. And in this paragraph, verses 9 through 14... God makes it very clear that Abraham and his descendants, they have obligations as they respond to God's covenant promises. In other words, keeping the covenant actually requires obedience. In verse 9, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He has broken my covenant. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And you'll notice here that he explains that obviously this happens to males only, and it's young males eight days old, this is prescribed for every male who is born um, into the the house of Abram or purchased in there to be circumcised at a very young age. Now, I want to try to quickly answer a couple questions you may have or may not, but we're going to answer them anyway. Why this sign? (laughs) It's little. It's like, really? You couldn't have come up with something different, God? Or, Or why males only? And I think this is a layered and complex question, and I I don't think we have time to cover all of it uh, today, but I wanna give you a few things to really think about. You see, covenant signs, they have a meaningful connection to the specific nature of the covenant. So it's not just some like trivial sign that God just said, wow, we'll just do this. No, it actually has, has significance. It's actually telling us or reminding us something about the very nature of the covenant, and the focus Of God's promise. I want you to think about this. The focus of God's promise to Abraham is presently on his descendants, right? His offspring. This is a word that we've traced all the way through the book of Genesis, starting all the way back in Genesis 315. There is to come a promised offspring, a promised seed, one who would eventually reverse the curse and bring blessings to the the world, to all nations of the world. And so, you see, it's actually appropriate that the sign of this covenant is connected with the, the male reproductive organ. I'm not trying to be crass. I just, I just want you to, you know, just, I want to give you a real answer here. And, and male offspring, plural, are to be circumcised as a reminder, listen, that a male offspring, singular, would ultimately be the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And Paul makes this connection of offspring, we've looked at this already too, in Galatians chapter 3, telling us that Christ is the offspring. But it was also a reminder of what it meant to be a part of the covenant community that came with privileges and responsibilities. You see, circumcision was an external sign in the flesh that symbolized what was really necessary. It was a reminder in one sense, listen, that there is a sinful part of our, our, ourselves, and even in the New Testament it's referred to as the flesh. The flesh is, is, is often a term that's used synonymously with the sinful part of a human being. And so what we're actually told in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, is that what God wants, listen, circumcision, physical circumcision saved nobody. What God was saying was, listen, this physical circumcision is a reminder that what you really need is a circumcision of the heart. You need, you need, in other words, the sin part of your life, your heart that's rooted deep within you, deep within humanity, it actually has to be cut out. It has to be dealt with. And so the removal of the foreskin just symbolizes the purification that was truly necessary for a genuine, real relationship with God. It was pointing to what the people of God desperately needed. They needed a new heart. They needed regeneration. They needed God to do something internally inside them that they could never do for themselves. And what he gives to him here, I think we can all agree that this is a very radical demand, okay? Now, circumcision was actually not unique to the Jews at the time. It was actually practiced in, in other ancient cultures. But what God was asking Abram to do here with all the this was this was unique. And it had unique meaning. But can you need just imagine for a minute that God comes to Abram and says, this is what I want you to do, Abram. He's 99 years old. And he's like, uh, what would you say? You want me to do What? But what's so fascinating here is that Abram doesn't even question it. He's just like, whatever you want, God, however you want, whenever you want, and listen, that's that's the nature of true obedience, isn't it? This kind of obedience is the result of experiencing God's unending grace. And the covenant that God had established with Abram was truly God's unending grace. God was committing himself to Abram, did it again. It's Abraham now. See, I can't even get myself to reverse it. But obedience, listen, is a response to receiving grace. I need you to hear this. Obedience like this is a response to receiving grace. It's not a means to achieving grace. You you can't earn God's grace. You can't merit God's favor. All obedience in the Christian life is about responding to the grace that's already been shown to us. It's never, never about somehow securing our salvation as if if we just do enough, then maybe God will, will love us, accept us, truly save us. That's not the way salvation works in the Christian faith. And in fact, it's the only faith that teaches this, that it's wholly dependent upon the grace of God to save us. Even your faith is a gift from God. But this is the best part of this passage, I think, because he not only has to circumcise himself and his children, he has to now go throughout every male in his camp, in his clan, and circumcise them. And I'm just telling you right now, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in these conversations. Because these these guys, like this is a big clan that he's got right now, and remember, some of these guys are like, like these are tough dudes. They're not like effeminate modern day men. Okay? These are real men. These guys have fought in battles. They they went up like they charged, like stormed four kings. These are tough dudes living in a tough place and and, and, and like they're battle-hardened warriors, and that this is the scariest day of their life, I promise you. <laughs> they're just praying that Abram doesn't sneeze. And it's not just people who are born. It's people, you notice verses 11 through 13, they're people who are bought. Anybody who identified with the people of God was to go through this this rite of circumcision. And that's a powerful reminder, listen, that God's promise was ultimately pointing to all the peoples of the earth. He wasn't just looking to save one particular ethnic group. He wanted to save people from every tribe, nation, language, And the radical demand here, I just want you to notice too, verse 14, look at the warning here. This is serious. If you didn't do this, this was a big problem. There's a bit of a a play on words here in the original language. And essentially, he's, he's saying, here's the choice, be cut or be cut off. The one who will not submit to this right of covenant membership has disobeyed the covenant stipulation and thereby broken God's covenant. Therefore, he has forfeited his privilege of being a part of God's covenant community and God requires that he is actually excommunicated from the community. This is serious. And I think from this we can deduce that God's unending grace is extended only to those who are truly part of his covenant community. Don't be confused by that you are not a recipient of God's unending grace unless you have actually embraced Jesus Christ by faith. But once you've done that, truly done that from the heart, God will never remove his grace from your life. And so this permanent mark in the flesh was a reminder, listen, of the permanence of God's grace toward those who believe and who walk by faith. And, and this grace is always available for sinners. As long as you live, listen, as long as you live on this earth, if, if you're alive right now, you can turn to God today. You can embrace Jesus Christ by faith and be the recipient of his unending grace. This, this sign was a reminder for the people of God. Listen, God is faithful But this painful, and it was, bloody, and it was, right, was also a reminder of covenant obedience. It was a perpetual reminder for God's people that, yes, God is faithful to his covenant, but I am called to be faithful to my faithful God. And let me make one more connection to you. Let me, let me connect this to Christ for you. And, and I, I want to do this. This is in a way that they could not yet fully understand Circumcision was actually pointing to the one, the seed, the offspring of Abraham, who would ultimately be cut off for our covenant unfaithfulness as he hung upon the cross and bled and died for us. Obedient faith requires that you encounter God's unmatched power, that you experience God's unending grace, and third, that we embrace God's unexpected blessing. And in verses 15 through 21, it's, it's no coincidence that, that, that next, God actually assured Abram and, and Sarah that, that Sarah would have a son. It's amazing. He talks about this covenant that's ultimately going to point us to Jesus, and then he goes right to this couple and he says, you know, you're going to have this son. It says, and God said to to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. She gets a fresh start too, just like him. This is a new creation moment for both of them where they're reminded of the power of God to bring life from the dead. Verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her in the... And she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Same thing he said to, to Abram. He's saying, listen, it's you. It's you as a couple that I'm going to bring forth this promise. Then Abram, verse 17, he fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abram's like, God, <laughs> this is amazing, right? God, he encounters God. God tells him what he's going to do. And Abram starts laughing. He's like, God, it's Okay. You don't have to do that, God. It's it's, It's impossible. We've already got this son, Ishmael. And God's like, no, don't you understand? That's the product of human human initiation. And we need something that's divine and supernatural. The whole point of this, Abram, is this, that I'm going to bring forth life from the dead. I'm going to do something that is humanly impossible to do. But we get this, don't we? Abram here has some doubt that rises up in his heart and not unbelief but not perfect faith, and I think doubt is kind of right in the middle of unbelief and faith. It kind of straddles the fence there, and I think we can, we can resonate with, with Abram because we, we hear the word of God, we are exposed to the word of God, and we, we receive promises from God, and oftentimes it sounds too good to be true. It sounds utterly impossible, especially when we filter it through the grid of our current circumstances, So God tells us through his word that he's in control, but evil rages around the world, in our lives, God's word tells us that he loves us, but our our lives are marred by pain and suffering and all kinds of tragedy and and trials and difficulty. God tells us in his word that he's coming soon, but time just keeps stretching on and on. And I just want you to hear this today. I think it's okay to express your doubts to God. And, And I love, listen, I love, I love that God doesn't rebuke Abraham. He reassures Abraham. And I think sometimes, listen, this is life. This is life, living in a fallen world with fallen hearts. We start to doubt. And, and God says, I, I want to reassure you of my faithfulness to you. I know how things look. I know how things feel. But I want you to know that I'm the God who's sovereign over all of it. I haven't forgotten you. I've made promises, and I will keep them. I will be true to my word. You can trust me. And the truth is, listen, that though it's okay to express our doubt to God, God never wants us to stay in this place of doubting him. He doesn't want our lives to be fueled and driven by our doubts and our fears. He wants his word to reassure us of his promises so that we can live by faith and hope. We can cling fast to him, the God who never changes, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants to strengthen our faith to remove our doubts and our fears. And in verse 18 says, Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. I like that. That's how I think God said it to him. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You want to know what Isaac means? He laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. God's common grace. God's so gracious, even to someone who never turns to God. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. It's going to multiply him greatly. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Every time, every time, every time, Abraham, at the age of 100 years old, held that little baby Isaac in his arms, he would be reminded that God laughs at our human obstacles. God laughs at what we think is humanly impossible, that God is able to overcome any obstacle in our way to fulfill the promises he has made to us. And it's so amazing, listen, to be reminded today that in the end, God gets the last laugh. And we know that Isaac is ultimately pointing to, to Abram's greater son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who would, listen, who would get the last laugh over the greatest obstacles facing humanity, the obstacles to the promise of God, sin and death and Satan. God would overcome them all. In fact, in Psalm uh, 2, a messianic psalm, let me just throw it up on the screen really quick for you here. This is amazing. Just This is speaking of Jesus who would come. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's awesome. Like the whole world, it, you, know, you may feel like the whole world's against you. The church may feel like the whole world is going to attack the faith, and, and they will, by the way, but he who sits in the heavens, He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, this is speaking, by the way, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who overcomes our greatest obstacle, sin and death. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's not the incarnation, that's the resurrection. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise; be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Here it is. This is the best part. Kiss the sun. Can you just can you see this? Listen. Grab a hold of the sun. Kiss the sun. May he be precious to you. May he be everything to you. May you recognize that he is your only hope. May you recognize that he is the one who overcomes every obstacle you face. Anything that may prevent the promise of God being fulfilled in your life is overcome in Jesus Christ. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God gets the last laugh. Embrace God's unexpected blessing, His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you have, listen, there's only one thing left to do, and it's it's this. Enact God's unavoidable commands. You see, this all requires radical obedience. When you come face to face with God, when you have encountered the truth about who God is, and some of you here today, maybe, maybe you're just encountering God for the first time today. You need to hear and understand this. You are faced with unavoidable commands. You may choose to reject them, but you are confronted with them. And the commands are this. Will, will you believe in Jesus Christ? Will you follow him? Will you obey him? Or will you reject him and face the wrath of God? Verse 22 through 27, this is how it ends. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. Notice that. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That very day. The chapter ends by showing Abraham's obedience to the covenant which demonstrates his faith in God. No hesitation, no delay, no committee meetings, just instant obedience. God says it, that settles it, we obey it. That was his attitude when it came to the word of God. That's how he responded. Let me ask you today, is that how you respond to the word of God? God says it, that settles it. I obey it. Our obedience is the fruit of faith. The evidence of knowing God is obeying God. And and when we think about what this means in the New Testament context, let me just show you the, the radical obedience Jesus calls for in Luke 9, 23 through 26. I'll put it on the screen. It says this, that if anyone would come after me angels. This is just as radical as the command that God gave to Abraham. Follow me means that you will be willing to be crucified every day. Do do not be ashamed of Jesus means that you will cling to him, that you will hold fast to him, that you will follow him all the days of your life, that you will give all for him. And if that's Not happen to you if you have not followed Jesus Christ, if you've not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, here's what the Word of God says to you. Do it this very day. There's urgency. Do it this very day. God loves you. God has come for you. God has died for you. He has risen from the grave for you so that you can be saved from your sin and give an everlasting life, the promise of a future, new heavens, and new earth, encountering the presence of God forever. What happened to God's covenant stipulation that as a, a sign of covenant membership, all males be circumcised? Well, after his resurrection, Jesus in Matthew 28, he, he sends out his apostles to make disciples Not to circumcise them, but to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, disciples are people who repent and believe and follow Jesus. The very first sermon preached in the book of Acts was repent and believe and be baptized and you see, if you don't repent, then you don't get baptized. That's what the, the New Testament teaches. Nothing in the New Testament, uh, there's nothing in the New Testament should be about, about baptizing those who repent and believe and then their infant children. It's, it's different. It's distinct from the Old Covenant. It's the New Covenant sign, and there are new aspects of the covenant. You see, in the Old Testament, the Covenant sign was given to newborns, but in the New Testament, the Covenant sign is only given to those who are born again. And only those who are born again through faith in Jesus. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, the scriptures tell us that the new covenant is not like the the one that he made. God says, It's not like the one I made with you at Sinai. And in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 goes on to say that in this covenant, all will know me. In other words, everyone in the covenant knows God. And if you don't know God, then you're not in the new covenant and you shouldn't be baptized. But if you know God by faith in Jesus Christ, then you're invited into the waters of baptism to declare your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the sign of the new covenant. And the connection point for us is as the old covenant points us towards the one who would come, baptism points us back to the one who did come. And it reminds us, uh, again, that we are united to Christ. And Paul in Galatians, we won't go there, um, Paul in Galatians 3, he actually talks about a baptism being a part, we, we won't go there, don't worry about it, we're, we're short on time, I wanna get to the baptisms, that's the exciting part here. But, but you can look it up later. Paul in Galatians 3 talks about this, that, that really, our baptism really symbolizes our union with Christ. So those who are united to Christ by faith are actually baptized into him, and so that's what baptism symbols. You see, what's taking place in the waters of baptism, people are declaring their faith in Jesus, but the symbol itself is demonstrating that that person has died, Christ has died for them, and they are immersed in the death of Christ. Christ took their place, he paid for their sin, he died their death, and as they are raised up from the waters, it is symbolizing Jesus Christ being raised from the dead to newness of life. You see, it's a demonstration, it's a picture, a declaration, it's a sign, listen, that we are new creations in Christ, united to him by faith, and it's a joy for us to celebrate this today. How fitting on a day like today, by the way, this wasn't planned by me, I'm not that smart, but in God's providence, we get to see five people, five people today declare their faith in Jesus Christ, and I want to invite them forward, beginning with Brad, Brad, why don't you come forward and tell us your testimony of faith in Jesus